It's like a puzzle every single day. It's always different. These were people that were respected. They were making choices that a lot of us could see ourselves making. So I think a lot of Avalanche professionals or Avalanche just recreationals in general um, were hit really hard by this because it made you evaluate the own, your, your own personal response that you were taking. And it was a situation that I think a lot of folks um, could have seen themselves in that day. And it, it made people kind of take a step back and think about the way that they're approaching um, Avalanche terrain, uh, if they know where other parties are, what type of train is above them, and then um, looking for any other obvious signs. This is Nikki Champion, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by Ten Barrel Brewing and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. We are rolling out our final episode for season six here, and I'm very pleased to present a great conversation with Nikki Champion. Nikki is a, a forecaster for the Utah Avalanche Center. She has experiences up in Montana where she went to uh, undergrad at Montana State University and did some work in the Sub-Zero Lab and also worked with the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center before heading up to Alaska where she uh, did an internship with the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center. Nikki reflects on some experiences that she's had throughout her career um, that have been impactful and, and talks a bit about some of the challenges and rewards of being an avalanche forecaster. So here we go with Nikki Champion. Welcome to the show, Nikki. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, spring is upon us, it seems, and everybody's kind of transitioning into their spring and summer gigs. Where are you you and what are you doing these days? Yeah, we're uh, trying to transition, but it felt like winter came back. Um, I'm still in Utah as of right now, uh, packing up and heading back to the Pacific Northwest later today, though. All right on. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what's your story. Talk about growing up, early memories of skiing and entry into the backcountry. And then how did you get involved in avalanche forecasting? Yeah, so um, I actually grew up in the Midwest. Uh, my parents were in Colorado and moved me to Michigan when I was pretty young. So I don't really have any big memories from Colorado, but uh, grew up alpine ski racing on the trash mounds of Michigan. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to spend almost my entire life on skis, but in a much uh, different capacity than I do now. Um, when I transitioned to college, I headed out to Colorado to start and started pursuing a engineering degree. While I was pursuing my engineering degree, I was lucky enough to get a work study at the Outdoor Rec Center my freshman year. And 
that's when I kind of was able to transition from alpine ski racing where you, you know, slide all the fresh snow off the slope to uh, backcountry skiing. I was fortunate enough to be able to take my first uh, avalanche level one. I took my avalanche level two and was able to start um, kind of helping out with really entry level, uh, quote unquote, backcountry skiing trips. We'd like walk to a hut and that was about the extent of terrain management I would do. Um, but it was my first kind of intro into backcountry skiing and also kind of my first intro of seeing how closely connected um, snow science and engineering was to or to each other. Um, the outdoor rec manager, manager at the time was also a civil engineer. So he's really into snow science. So it was cool to kind of get that first brief look into how closely related engineering and snow science could be. Um, Cause at the time I was just doing engineering and didn't really know what I, I wanted to do with my life. Um, after a little bit of time in Colorado, I pivoted schools and ended up um, in Bozeman, Montana. While I was there, I again, went to the outdoor rec because I was kind of all I'd had for employment. And while I was there, I was lucky enough to get connected with a grad student who was just looking for field partners. He was doing PST research at the time, looking for somebody with at least a level two that wanted to spend some time in the snow, shoveling a lot of pits. And so I went out with him digging five plus full profile pits a day, doing countless PSTs a day and uh, just spending time in the snow with him. And uh, it was kind of during that transition when I transferred schools, I was like, do I hate engineering or do I kind of just hate what I was doing? And it made me, you know, again, think about how closely related snow science and engineering seem to be. And that's when I started kind of pivoting more that direction from just um, traditional civil engineering. Uh, after being connected with that grad student, um, I was able to get connected with the friends of the Gallatin, begin teaching avalanche courses for them, started working as a field partner for some of the forecasters while I was there, and then um, began doing my own research within the snow science department, um, both in the civil side and in the snow science side, started petitioning and uh, snow science classes to count towards engineering, um, just kind of trying to make it all fit, make it all work. Um, during this time, I also began first working um, as a mountain guide in the Pacific Northwest. So I was guiding on Rainier and the North Cascades and all I basically just spending my entire year in snow at this point. Um, once I graduated from school, I continued doing avalanche education, um, was teaching for a couple of guide outfits um, in Montana, continuing to work as a field partner, continue to do research um, as a post-grad in the sub-zero science and engineering lab, um, more on the snow mechanics and ice physics side. Um, and then the following winter, I was lucky enough to end up in the Chugach. We're uh, interning at, uh, at the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center. Uh, I was pretty fortunate when I was up there to be able to work with uh, Wendy Wagner and Alf Johnson Bloom and Heather Pham. I'd had a lot of like really strong mentors earlier in my career and been like really fortunate with the opportunities that were presented to me between um, working as a research assistant and being a field partner. But I never really had any strong female men. So it was a really cool opportunity to get to spend a winter up there with all of those women and uh, kind of just have such a solid team of strong female mentors kind of for the, the first time in my career. Um, while I was up there, we really focused on uh, moving towards forecasting and then um, doing research on snow climate and how many days following a loading event, avalanche occurrences happen depending on the snow climate. So I did research on that put that into the tar. And then the following winter, I started applying for full-time forecasting jobs and was lucky enough to 
planned a gig down here in Utah and I've been here ever since. Cool. Well, that sounds like a plethora of experience and seems like you've been alongside some great people along the way. <laughs> Mainly a lot of shoveling. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right on. Um, did you seek out the the internship up in the Chugach because of the strong female team at the time, or was that just kind of the best opportunity for you? And and talk a little bit about you know how the impact of having strong women in the industry around you, because um, that doesn't happen everywhere, at least in in the recent past, right? Yeah, I, I definitely sought it out. I um, had interacted with a few people that had done the internship previously um, during my time in Montana. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'd never really had a female mentor in my progression um, in the avalanche world. And when you look at that forecast and you saw um, three like strong female forecasters that had been hired because they were the you know most competent people for that position. It had nothing to do with them being males or females. Um, it seemed like a really cool opportunity to get really strong female mentorship and also just a really cool opportunity to um, spend time in the Chugach, experience another snow climate, a new snow range, um, just overall an opportunity to learn a lot. Um, but yeah, it, it did impact me a lot getting a strong female mentorship, uh, kind of the way that they uh, lead with grace and uh, can have a really strong presence without it necessarily being masculine. But um, I think they did they do just a, as good of a job as anyone else. And it's really cool to see um, people that look like you in these leadership positions. Mm -hmm. Speak a little bit about some thoughts that you have about how we can how we can bring more of that into the industry. And it's it's clearly happening, but I think there are some steps the industry can take to continue that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is clearly happening. Um, it's still, there's still not a ton of us. And I think seeing, you know, having more women in positions of power, having, our, you know, in these forecasting positions, in these ski patrol positions, in these guide positions, the more women or the more people that you see that look like you when you're entering this field, the less intimidating it becomes. And then I think just like um, having things like women-specific avalanche education um, is a really great opportunity, not because women need specific avalanche education, because they don't. They're just as strong, as competent as men, but it is a place that can cultivate that mentor-mentee relationship um, is in those places of avalanche education or at women-specific talks or women-specific gatherings, because it can be really hard to get that mentor mentee relationship. That's something, you know, I had to actively seek out. So I think just creating space for more um, people entering the industry and more professionals to connect, and then just having more um, women professionals kind of visible social media is pushing that um, podcasts are pushing that. I think just making it more visible so that as um, younger females to start pursuing careers, they, they know that this isn't a viable option for them. Nikki, talk a little bit about the Utah Avalanche Center in general. You know, how many forecasters you have, how many forecast areas are involved, um, and some of the other forecast programs that the UAC works with throughout the Wasatch. Yeah, so the Utah Avalanche Center, it encompasses the entire state of Utah. We've currently got 10 forecasters for the state. That includes primarily Forest Service employees, but also, also nonprofit employees that work a couple less days. Um, 
we forecast for the Salt Lake, Provo, and Ogdenary Mountains is kind of the central Wasatch that you think about. We forecast for the Logan Area Mountains, um, the Uintas, uh, the Skyline Area, and then like the Moab Southwest Area. So we've got forecasters all over the state. Um, we've got about five of us, or like four or five, that includes the director focusing on the Salt Lake, Provo, and Ogdenary Mountains. Um, and then we've got uh, forecasters scattered the rest of the state covering those more outlier areas. Um, and then we've got about eight folks on the nonprofit side as well that, um, you know, just support our overall messaging. So they support outreach, education, um, and they help kind of hold us all together. We're all considered the UAC. We don't really have like the friends of the UAC and then the forecasters. We're just all the UAC and both the forecasters and the nonprofit staff. Um, but for the other entities here in Utah, we're like so fortunate we have so many ski resorts, which uh, include so many great professional uh, ski patrollers. And we work really closely with the snow safety departments at all of the ski resorts. We're lucky enough to share information um, every single morning, depending what they get from their control morning or if it, what they're seeing with their weather in the morning and kind of what they put their forecast at for the ski resort. We also work really closely with the DOT. Again, we share that information every single evening and every single afternoon, as well as a lot of the heli operations and the guide operations. So um, we're constantly communicating. Um, we feel really lucky because uh, there's so many users in the central Wasatch, but it's also like a pretty uh, complex little range. So getting a ton of information is really helpful because there's only five of us focusing on the central Wasatch. And again, only 10 of us for the state. So the more entities we can work with going towards the same, you know, overall mission statement of keeping people safe, um, it helps us get a better picture of what's going on. And then you all get so many observations from the recreating public, right? It seems like the UAC yeah. has done a great job integrating, you know, social media into observations and getting real-time information from the field from recreating public. Yeah, we rely really heavily on observations. Again, you know, there's only so many of us and there's so many competent um, professional users, but recreational users as well um, across the state of Utah. So Folks can submit observations that are uh, really in-depth and include everything from snow profiles to weather, but people can also just kind of let us know what they're seeing out for the day. Just submitting a photo of a cornice uh, can also help us through that day. And then again, people can tag us on Instagram. They can tag us on Facebook. They can just send us an email. Uh, and we're trying to even eventually move towards a direction that makes it even easier, like maybe just text in a photo and it will go directly to our queue. We want uh, getting information to us to be as easy as possible. Because we know once you start making like a pretty long form, um, the more minutes you have to put in, the less likely you're to get that information. Um, so we, we just want to be able to gather as much information as easily as we can from the public. And do you all have a, a forecaster that's in the office for the day? And then how many forecasters and professional observers are in the field on any given day? Yeah, so I can kind of talk about more what the day-to-day -day looks like for, again, just the central Wasatch, because that's the area. I forecast for. So there's um, five of us forecasting for Salt Lake, Provo, and Ogden. And what that looks like on average is you're actually forecasting about two days a week for those three zones. You put out three products every morning. And leading up to those forecast days, you're likely in the field the three days prior. Um, the night before you forecast, you're going through all the professional observations, all the ski resort observations, all the weather stations. Um, you're kind of getting an idea of what's going to go on with the weather and getting a picture and you're doing a handoff meeting with the forecaster who forecasted the day before. So you're going to talk through your thoughts and you're going to hear what they have to say. And the next morning you get up, you know, sometime between 345 and four, and you start plugging away at weather stations. You spend about an hour um, for the Salt Lake Provo Ogden area, 
looking at weather stations because we are lucky enough to have a ton of weather stations for our area. And then around five, we that's when we get our information from ski resorts. And that's when we kind of plug in what we're thinking for the day for the ski resorts to also see. And we record a quick hotline for the Dawn patrollers. And then from five to seven, we're writing our products, um, kind of compiling it all, proofreading it over and over again. And then by seven, ideally pushing or publish and then recording another hotline, doing a quick radio interview. And that's when you can kind of like take a deep breath for the morning. And then you become um, the forecaster uh, on duty or kind of like the forecaster of the day. And for the Salt Lake office, if you're the forecaster on duty, you're in charge of knowing where all the other forecasters are in the state because the Logan, Uinta, Skyline area, they don't have a fleet of five folks to rotate. So they're forecasting every single day and going into the field. So that Salt Lake office is in charge of knowing where all the forecasters are in the state, making sure they check in, they check out, and then dealing with media because we do deal with media pretty heavily here in Utah, which is awesome. Um, we're on the radio, we're on TV, we're like trying to reach as many folks as we can as often as we can, but we end up doing a lot of media on those forecaster on duty days. And then if there is an incident, you become the incident commander for the day. So um, that's your kind of position in the Salt Lake office is making sure you know where everybody is, making sure everybody checks back out and um, yeah, handling a lot of emails. <laughs> <laughs> what are the check-in, check-out procedures and, and, you know, what are the protocols for you ever have any forecasters that are solo out there? Does everybody always have a partner and, and are they checking in throughout the day or just when they're entering the field and coming out of the field? What's it, what does that look like? Yeah, so we have kind of an internal built-in check-in, check-out through our website. Um, we try to keep everything pretty centralized. But when you check out in the morning, uh, you let um, us know. It's just a form that you fill out. It tells you where you're going to go, um, who your partner is, what their contact information is. You don't have to have a partner, um, but you specify if you do or not. Um, again, that just depends on what's going on with the snowpack and what makes sense. Uh, we don't have any like necessarily hard set rules. Uh, and then you talk about what the forecast is for the day, um, what problems or like what your focus for the day is going to be, like what you're ideally looking for, and then any other hazards that uh, might come about. Because, you know, there's obviously, we'll talk about the main hazard that we've identified with the danger rating, but there's always other hazards, whether it's early season conditions like hitting stumps or, you know, January, February, we just had pretty firm skiing conditions. So th there are always other hazards and we talk about those as well. And then we let folks know where our car is, what the license plate is, and then what time we're expected to check back in. And as soon as we save that, it shoots a text out to all the forecasters. So everybody in the state knows where everybody else is. Um, and the same thing happens when we check back in. And normally our check-in is set around uh, 6 p.m. We kind of push things back in the spring, but we like folks to be back <laughs> uh, before uh, 6 p.m. And then if somebody checks in late, that's when we start to kind of move through our emergency response plans of first checking in with those listed partners, um, checking in with any other folks that may know where the forecaster is. Cause sometimes you just kind of forget to fill out that form when you had a long day in the field. So, um, we start checking and running through the list of who to check in with and before moving into like checking for the car or running through any potential like search and rescue operations. Seems like pretty solid protocols there. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got them set. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the this year's winter in Utah. It's we're recording this on April 30th and just mm -hmm. kind of give us the highlight reel of of how the winter went and some of the notable avalanche cycles from the season. Um, layers of concern and any 
notable accidents or near misses that happened? Yeah, so I think like a lot of the West, uh, we had quite a bit of early season snow. So kind of October, November, skiing was great. Uh, fell on grass and people were able to get out in October and ski some big lines. And then as what seems to be the habit of the last few years, the snow kind of shut off for November. Um, southerlies began melting out, but northerlies held snow. And that went through um, most of November and then early December. Coming around Christmas or mid-late December, we started to get more um, snowfall into early January. And that's when we uh, started seeing kind of our first larger avalanche cycles failing on more or less the northern end of the compass. So anywhere that got that early season snow that it was able to weaken and fasten and just sit on the ground, that's where we're seeing most of our avalanche uh, cycle through uh, December. And when we did get a slab finally forming on top of that, um, we had a couple large avalanche cycles, um, not too many like notable, big, close calls, fortunately. Uh, we were really lucky here in Utah as of April 30th to uh, have no fatalities um, this year. So December went pretty well, was um, really enjoyable skiing, but you kind of wanted to avoid that north end of the compass. And we were still thinking about um, the persistent week layer through most of December and um, moving into January. Uh, moving into January, the snow just kind of seemed to turn off. So we went most of January and a lot of February uh, sitting pretty high and dry. So we had that persistent week layer was a thought moving into early January, but, um, by like mid January, we just hadn't had much measurable snowfall. We'd had generally clear skies and quite a few periods of rather warm temperatures. Um, so stability mellowed out. We were green for a pretty long time. Um, travel, was challenging uh, just because we were having going through like freeze um, thaw cycles. We were having pretty firm conditions. We did have um, the only kind of ski related fatality this year was a um, slide for life fatality. So just falling in consequential terrain with really firm conditions. So um, travel became kind of challenging because you'd go through these uh, freeze thaws, have firm conditions, no new snow really, but it was allowing people to get into really big terrain um, midwinter you know, maybe do some alpine objectives. It wasn't necessarily the best skiing, but it gave people the opportunity to like kind of travel far, see cool things, have good weather. And that's kind of what happened for most of um, January and early February. Um, and the snowpack on the surface uh, was weakening through that entire period because it was still January and February. So even with warmer temperatures during the day, we were still having colder temperatures at night, um, almost all aspects. Um, but especially the northern facing aspects and kind of like protected terrain. So upper elevations um, dealt with a lot of wind and we're getting pretty hammered and kind of like cemented into place. But any kind of more protected uh, mid and lower upper elevation terrains were just weakening and faceting through this entire system, uh, kind of calling it loud pow. It, it made for good skiing at the time. if You could find where it weakened and um, softened. But we knew moving into the next storm cycle, when it did finally come, that we were going to have to be thinking about a persistent week layer. Like yet again, we thought we'd kind of put it in the past, that early season persistent week layer, but we had created um, yet again another um, pretty stout persistent week layer on like the west and north through east facing aspects um, at those mid and upper elevations. Um, I think 
end of February or March, we began finally getting uh, more precip. Um, and we started to put a slab on top of that um, persistent weak layer. And we did start to see avalanches happening on this layer. And that's kind of when we started seeing um, quite a few close calls. So I think a lot of professionals have been traveling through this entire high and dry season or section and been kind of trying to identify or really narrow down where that weak faceted snow was exactly um, and kind of walking a really thin line of like where the faceted snow may exist and where it does not exist, where it kind of, I think was a little bit more widespread or because it had so much spatial variability, it was pretty hard to like narrow down. Um, and we started seeing close calls with um, ski guides getting kind of caught off guard right at that 30 degree low, like low mid elevation, like right at that mid elevation line. So 8,500 feet for us um, getting caught carried partially buried on slopes um, right around 30, 31 degrees. Um, we had a close call um, that involved a full burial um, and a guided group where a um, two people were caught carried. One person was um, fully buried and uh, under the snow for about 23 minutes when the party was able to recover them, um, clear an airway and uh, got a full recovery. They're doing good now, but it, again, it was um, quite a few like avalanche professionals being caught in these close calls. I think um, walking the fine line of trying to identify where that persistent weak layer, exactly where that persistent weak layer was instead of giving um, those northerly aspects a little bit more space. And then uh, things shut off again. <laughs> we had like, you know, March storm and um, end of March, we had not much more precip and then moving into um, the last two weeks, we finally started to see a little bit more snow, um, but we're not really dealing with a persistent weak layer. We just are dealing with kind of spring snow instabilities. So a little bit of new snow instabilities when it first fell and uh, wind drifted snow when the wind picks up. And then anytime the sun comes up, we're dealing with some uh, wet snow instabilities, but the two main cycles of the season were the uh, early season pers persistent weak layer and then the January, February kind of drought that left another persistent weak layer kind of covering the Wasatch. Nikki, what are some ways kind of throughout that drought period? And I know it can kind of feel like groundhog day sometimes during those long periods of high pressure and there's not too much change happening to the snowpack as a forecaster. How do you, how do you kind of stay engaged there and what, what are some strategies you take to, kind of keep your head in the snow? Yeah, I mean, it can definitely um, be challenging to stay as kind of on your game. You're not having to do, it doesn't feel like as much in the morning. So when you do kind of get thrown back into a storm, you kind of have to remind yourself how to do it all. Um, but I think kind of like putting more of a, like a positive spin on it, rather than just like being a drought, it was an opportunity that we were able to get into really big terrain, big lines. Like I was able to ski some pretty fun things again in sort of marginal conditions, but to be able to go for like really big walks, um, in really nice conditions without having to like think about it too much was pretty nice, especially after having a pretty exhausting season last year. It was nice to have about like two months where you could like take a deep breath, take care of yourself. Um, you know, still be following the snow, be trying to map where that persistent weak layer, looking for the faceted grains, but still get some really big, pretty fun, just days in the Alpine out. Right. 
because I, I imagine that most of the recreating public kind of was in that same same mode of travel and same kind of Groundhog Day, maybe not thinking as much about instabilities during that long period of, of dryness. Um, so what are some strategies kind of moving into uh, a changing snowpack once you got a load on that? Like what were, how did you message that to the public? And, and try and urge people to take a big step back because that can be tough sometimes, I think. Yeah, I think once you adapt to being able to spend so much time without having to think as much, moving into like what we knew there was going to be a loading event and we knew that the snow was weakening. I mean, we kept trying to, again, we put a positive spin on it because we wanted people to still be traveling and getting this opportunity to go um, have really nice alpine skis or get out ice climbing and spend time in the alpine but once we started moving towards what looked like there was going to be weather coming especially once we started forming a slab those first couple storms you know are less of a concern you're more just thinking about how it might bond to that um, surface faceted snow but once we um, started forming a slab on top of that weak faceted grains um, we really focused on like pushing out uh, information in the forms of like we use social media really heavily we push out press releases so that hits the National Weather Service, that hits media sources. Sometimes it even hits the cotton with signs at the bottom. So uh, we kind of went all hands on deck. And, uh, you know, we had some pretty, like, informal conversations going on on Instagram as well. You might have seen, like, Cowboy just doing gear room chats. Or if we had a weekend that we were going into that, you know, our tone had to change. Uh, forecasters would just kind of be sitting down and recording a quick Instagram that's like, I'm afraid that somebody could get an accident this weekend. And, um, you know, just like being very honest and when we have those big changes, trying to push them out and, you know, let as many people as we can know. Mm -hmm. What is the UAC doing to, to reach out to different types of users? So, um, more of the snow machine users and ice climbers and, and what are some strategies that are utilized there? Yeah. So, um, you know, the central Wasatch has a lot of skiers and snowboarders and just generally riders. Um, a lot of our outlier zones have a lot of other, like more mechanized riders. We do specific education um, for mechanized riders. We um, also do talks that uh, involve um, groups outside of just skiers and riders. We offer a ton of um, free resources available. So like Know Before You Goes, trying to interact with all of these different groups. We'll offer Know Before You Goes for um, like at different shops, whether that be uh, at a mechanized shop or at BD, um, or more focusing on climbers. We also, um, Mark, the director is really heavily involved in the mechanized community in general. He comes um, from a background, uh, in Montana or working closely in cook city and um, spending a lot of time getting outreach to the mechanized community. And he's done like a really good job continuing that, um, through his time in Utah, but we have a lot of really great uh, resources that are free that we try to reach out to these groups. Um, we also have a lot of resources that we're starting to kind of more specify towards these groups. So by having like backcountry one-on-ones that are um, sled, like sled specific and bringing in educators that are also in that realm. Um, I think one of the best ways to reach these groups is having educators and having people in that realm that are already respected. Um, because if you, you bring somebody in that's not necessarily respected by the group, you're going to have a hard time reaching them. So I think just trying to get that information out. Um, we go to, uh, you know, I've been to events like Utah Snowmobile Kids Day. So trying to reach out to like, you know, even parents and just like letting them know that we exist. I think that's the first 
um, step is kind of like getting our name out there, letting as many people as we know, or as we can know that we exist, hoping that they end up on the website. Um, but also like pushing that out through social media, through Facebook, through the news, through the media, just hoping that um, it kind of will attack them from all sides. And eventually they'll hopefully end up on our forecast or get the information they need on those dangerous days. Are most of the forecasters kind of cross discipline starting to enter into that sled realm? Do you, do you ride a sled? I do. Yeah. Not super well. It's a work in progress, but I do own a sled. <laughs> yeah. And I, I enjoy riding. Um, yeah. Quite a few of us, uh, especially, you know, it's a crucial piece of equipment in Logan, in the Uintas, down in the skyline, in Moab. And then, um, yeah, here in the central Wasatch, quite a few of us um, go back and forth between skiing and riding for our field days. Right. It seems like that's super key to to being able to message towards those different user groups and, and just connect with those people as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Nikki, I was hoping you could talk about the uh, avalanche problem types that the Utah Avalanche Center uses because they're a little bit different than some other avalanche problem types that are used throughout other forecast centers in the U.S. Um, why do you all do that and, and how, how are they different? And uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so our avalanche problems, uh, we have seven. They're initially based on uh, the European Avalanche Warning Services. They have five typical problems. We kind of adjusted those and added two more that were more specific to the central Wasatch. So those seven avalanche problems first are new snow instabilities. We've got wind drifted snow instabilities, um, persistent weak layers, wet snow, gliding snow. And then the two that we added specific to the Wasatch are cornices and then just normal caution. Um, So that's a little bit different than uh, the typical problems that other uh, avalanche centers use. I know Montana uses the seven problems and then again, Europe, but I think it kind of, uh, just simplifies a lot of the problems down, especially um, during storms. It can encompass multiple problems uh, within one. So, you know, first off talking about like a new snow instability, um, within a storm, you could see um, both loose dry avalanches or storm slab avalanches. Um, Just by putting the avalanche problem as new snow, you know, that's your problem of the day. You're getting a bunch of new snow coming in with a storm. And then within the discussion, we often talk about like at the beginning of the storm, you could see loose dry avalanches, but as PI rates increase, we might start to see storm slab avalanches later in the afternoon. But the problem of the day is that new snow, and that's what the instability is. And then we kind of work our way through, again, same thing with wind-drifted snow. That's the problem of the day. We talk about uh, where it's going to be, what we're expecting, travel um, habits with that. And then for persistent weak layer, uh, we often deal with persistent weak layer here in Utah, and it kind of just keeps things simple going instead of going from just a persistent slab to a deep persistent slab. We talk about that persistent weak layer continuously. And then we'll talk about the depth that we see it as the season progresses. So whether that be one foot down or six feet down, we're still talking about that persistent weak layer and that's what's causing the avalanches. So um, we've just adapted it um, from Europe. We're just kind of trying to keep it a little bit more basic here. Um, And I think it's just, works well with our users and it's the type of yeah product that we're putting out. So um, it's a little bit different, but again, I think every single avalanche product is a little bit different. Each one has different nuances on whether or not they have a danger rose or where their likelihood is and how they set up um, the natural progression of the forecast. So 
I think they're all conveying the same information overall, just trying to get that bottom line statement out, let people know what the problem is, what's going to kill them for the day and what the travel advice is. I think we just um, kind of format it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And some people might say that there, there's a need to kind of have a stop sign look the same in Utah um, or Montana, right? Like to have that similar messaging. One of the strengths of the United States, I think, is the individuality of of different entities, right? And we're we're not necessarily uh, a top down federally funded. Well, much of it is federally funded, but not as much centralized as maybe say Canada. Um, so I, I think there are strengths in that, and and being able to to reach your users at, at, in the best possible way regionally. It really does like transfer over, you know, you've got that um, North American danger scale is still staying standard throughout. And it's just a little bit different on how we do our discussion. Sure. And then there's tons of information on the UAC website of, on tutorials and how to read a forecast. And I think everybody's doing that these days. So uh, a little bit different than, than some other centers, but it seems to be working great for Utah. Um, you mentioned you're, you've been doing a little bit of research regarding avalanche problem types listed in the forecast versus some types that that people are reporting in observations and public observations. I was hoping you could expand on this a little bit. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, every product is a little bit different and every avalanche problem, like product has different nuances. And um, we think it's important to kind of uh, check ourselves and see how our product is verifying. So um, because we get so many observations here um, in the central Wasatch, we're able to kind of like cross check or back check ourselves. So um, one thing that I'm working on is looking at how we list those avalanche problems, you know, whether it's persistent weak layer being avalanche problem number one of the day, and then wind drifted snow being avalanche problem number two, and then uh, cross comparing that to the avalanches that were reported from the public or from um, ski resorts that day and going into our database to see if the type of avalanche problem that we're reporting as number one is hopefully the types that we're most likely seeing. And then if there are any avalanche problems that we're, you know, seeing more um, struggles or if we're seeing it not quite aligned the way that we want it to. So it's just a way to kind of take our data, see if the product that we're putting out is aligning and um, using the observations that we get from the public to see if there's anything or any specific avalanche problem that we could um, maybe be improving upon. And what's, what's your data showing? Are you still kind of sifting through it? We're still sifting through it. Yeah. We want to pull, um, ideally like the last like seven years at least. So we're, we're still sifting through it. Ideally we're doing the right thing, but we'll have a better idea this fall. But, um, we work with a lot of like, again, we have a lot of really competent, professional users in the backcountry and some of our professional users have awesome skill sets like working with data analysis. So it's cool if we have like questions that we want to answer based on the website, we are um, able to kind of work through those for research. What would you say uh, numbers wise, like on a busy weekend with some new snow, how many public observations are you gathering? Um, on like a busy weekend that we're dealing with especially like a persistent weak layer that we're seeing quite a few or just a new snow instability with a lot of reported avalanches. Um, I would guess we see anywhere between um, 30 and 50, um, if not more avalanches uh, through the weekend. So on like a, a Saturday and a Sunday, I would guess you get like 30 to 50 uh, for the Salt Lake area. 
and then more for the rest of the state. That's, so, a, that's a ton of we info. We're sifting through, <laughs> through a lot of uh, observations. It's awesome. Yeah, it's huge. Cool. So, Nikki, I think it, it rings true both for life and, and in a career in the snow and avalanche industry that, that uh, you know, there are certain markers in time, pivotal moments, impactful events that happen. Um, I'm sure that uh, February 6th of 2021 was a day that you'll – you'll always remember, and many people will. Um, of course, we're talking about the Wilson Glades avalanche that claimed the lives of four individuals. You were involved in the in the accident investigation of the Wilson Glades avalanche, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that incident. Yeah. Um, so last year was a pretty impactful and challenging year across the entire West, not just for Utah, but we had a couple big incidents here. And um, one that, yeah, will definitely leave an impact. And I think we left an impact in most of the avalanche community and the local community was the Wilson Glade accident. Um, on February 6th, there was two separate groups um, totaling eight um, going up to Wilson Glades. It's in Alexander Basin. Um, those who are in Utah, it's kind of in the Mill Creek Canyon area. Um, both groups ascended from um, different drainages. One came from Big Cottonwood, one came up Mill Creek. Um, neither party knew about each other. There was one party of four or of five and one party of three. Um, They're both traveling uphill um, on the same skin track. So the second party B had seen the first skin track, but they didn't know that folks were still out. They saw some tracks. They didn't know if they had done a few runs on Wilson Glade and headed home. They were from a different time, um, but both parties were heading uphill um, near the top of Wilson Glades when um, an avalanche was triggered. Um, and uh, seven, um, or at this time, one folk was, one person was still at the top. So there were seven folks traveling uphill. One person had done two runs, uh, had their fill for the day. We're waiting at the top for the rest of the party to head back out big, that party that had come in big. Um, so there were seven folks traveling uphill, a avalanche was triggered and, um, all seven were caught. One party member was able to grab onto a tree. So he wasn't fully um, carried and buried and six folks were, um, fully buried. Uh, at that point, um, the party member who was able to grab onto a tree, um, was feet above the snow because it had pulled so much away from him. He was able to, uh, jump down, um, turn on his transceiver, yell to his partner who was on top of Wilson Glade at the time and, um, begin his rescue, uh, at this point, turn on his transceiver, went to the closest signal, started digging. Um, the first person that he was able to clear an airway uh, was not part of his party and it was somebody that he did not recognize. Um, cleared the airway and then from there was able to continue on the rescue, got another a low point, a positive probe strike, cleared an airway and it was yet again another person that he did not re uh, recognize from a different party. So at that point, I think it really like dawned on like what a large um, situation this was. Um, the first two people recovered, um, cleared an airway, luckily were able to survive. Um, the last four people who were also recovered within 45 minutes, um, unfortunately did not survive that recovery. Um, from there, they got all the bodies on the surface, got to a viable place to be extracted and were able to get um, flown out. And um, the next day we went in and uh, did the avalanche investigation and were able to 
uh, get the remaining four off the mountain that day. Um, again, I mean, just a pretty impactful story in general with such a large group, two parties traveling uphill, all um, things that I think uh, we don't think about a ton is, you know, traveling uphill, um, the slope angle that um, the crown was triggered on was 31 degrees. So right into that avalanche train and the lower party that was traveling uphill was on a 17 degree slope with avalanche train above them. So the community lost a lot of folks that were really close to them, but I think the community was also really heavily impacted because it, these were people that were respected. They were, um, making overall, um, choices that a lot of us could see ourselves making. So I think a lot of avalanche professionals or avalanche just recreationals in general um, were hit really hard by this because it made you evaluate the own, your, your own personal risk tolerance that you were taking. And it was a situation that I think a lot of folks um, could have seen themselves in that day. And it, it made people kind of take a step back and think about the way that they're approaching um, avalanche terrain, uh, if they know where other parties are, what type of terrain is above them, and then um, looking for any other obvious signs. The parties didn't see any obvious signs of like cracking or collapsing while they were traveling uphill, but they did see signs of recent avalanche activity on um, other slopes and it, it was a high avalanche danger that day. So um, a really challenging uh, learning situation for the Wasatch, but um, I think a accident that hopefully a lot of people can kind of like look in internally and learn a lot from uh, moving forward. Do you feel like this incident had a, had a big impact on the recreating public at large in, in Utah? And, and you think that, did you see or notice a, a collective step back from last year to this year? Yeah, it's, um, it definitely played a really big impact in the community. I we saw almost an immediate collective step back in the community last year. We were dealing with this persistent weak layer um, almost the entire season, it felt like. And I mean, the entire West was plagued with a persistent weak layer almost the entire season, um, which was kind of unfamiliar, I think, to a lot of users. Um, and immediately following that, we saw a pretty large uh, community step back. Moving into this year, it's hard to say if um, it was this situation that played a part or, um, you know, pushing of messaging this year. I mean, even from the forecasting side, dealing with a persistent weak layer um, was challenging for us to, uh, you know, we still felt that fatigue and that uncertainty of when we could drop the danger after dealing with such a challenging persistent weak layer last year and um, such a heartbreaking season in general. So I think it, it definitely did play over. I think some of the periods of like really high pressure also kept people at bay, uh, which is nice. But I, I do think that um, this incident like heavily impacted not only like the Utah community, but I think um, the avalanche community in general is like a learning opportunity to look at the situations that you could put yourself in and um, what you could learn from that day or potentially change. And not to mention that that stretch of what was it, two or three weeks had uh, numerous other fatalities across the Western U.S. too. That was a that was a pretty rough time period for everybody. I think. Yeah. What are some ways that that you dealt with it personally 
um, just kind of on a, were you feeling stress injuries after that? And, and sort of like, how did you deal with your mental, emotional and physical well-being after a event like that as a forecaster and just as a, a skier rider? I think a lot of us, um, we've talked about it a lot more this season than we did last season. Uh, didn't really realize how heavily it impacted us at the time. I think we were dealing with such a challenging season in general. We kind of were running on really high adrenals and really high adrenaline through the entire season, kind of um, keeping it going, um, trying to like take care of ourselves and trying to do our job um, effectively and keep people safe. And it was kind of when our season ended, I think a lot of us like finally took a deep breath and like looked back at um, kind of like how much we were struggling or how much it was impacting us. That was a really it was a hard, it was a hard season, a hard season across the West dealing with, um, accidents like that, doing accident investigations like that. Um, when it's, you know, your peers, it's people you respect, it's people who look like you. And again, I think of people related and were impacted really heavily by this because, you know, there, there can be accidents that people can look at and things that can be often so avoidable, like just simply wearing a transceiver. And those are easy lessons that a lot of us, you know, day to day by having, uh, avalanche equipment and having competent partners to avoid, but situations that people could actually see themselves in, I think uh, impact you a little bit more heavily and make you look at your decision-making. And I think when the season finally ended, a lot of us realized like how much that like stress had weighed on us. Greg, one of the forecasters did a talk at you saw this year about um, how much he realized the Wilson Glade incident impacted him. So while we didn't maybe do the best job taking care of ourselves last year, um, we've been um, definitely moving towards um, trying to take care of ourselves and preparing a lot more this year. I mean, we were fortunate to not have as stressful of a year, but um, we've got like more resources in place, like working um, with like local entities that are available. Um, if we want to talk um, not only about stress or about um, accidents in the mountains, but also just kind of being available and being prepared. So um, knowing what the resources are, having the resources available um, the UAC has resources available for all the forecasters and the nonprofit, um, whether or not there's an accident. Um, that's something that we have available now. And I think just kind of um, like being on the, the lookout um, and being more aware. Hmm. It's certainly an important topic to, to bring to the forefront of our entire industry, I think, is just looking out for one another's uh, well-being, uh, not just during those, those tough times, during uh, impactful events, but but throughout the whole season, right? Yeah. I, even when we aren't dealing with fatalities, it's still, uh, you know, we've been dealing with a couple fatiguing seasons in general. I think we've had, you know, COVID fatigue is going on for years now on people. And, I, you know, you just got to watch out for um, how folks are doing because that's going to impact, you know, your decision making. It's going to play into the heuristic traps that you might fall into in the backcountry. So I think just being aware of just, yeah, what your personal heuristic traps are and, looking out for them, looking out for your fatigue. I think it can help you kind of identify them before you fall into them. What are, what, what's one of your blind spots that you've been, that you've maybe identified that you need to kind of tune up in your own travel or your professional work, anything come to light in the last season or two? Um, yeah, I mean the definitely, uh, fatigue at the end of last season and then, um, a big one going, like I sort of briefly talked on, like is when we have these periods of um, high pressure, um, just trying to kind of stay on my systems. I know that I, um, when things seem simple, 
it's easy for us, even as forecasters, just in our tour planning and our terrain to um, maybe put the blinders on a little bit more or just like fall into habits. Um, So I think just kind of being aware that you might be letting your guard down or not be as prepared as soon as the weather changes. So I've been trying to even like if the forecasting seems pretty straightforward, still um, mix in a couple like extra early mornings doing all of the weather stations so that when um, things switch over, ideally I'm prepared and not caught off guard. Have any of your travel habits changed recently? Um, you know, after like last season and in general, um, like last season we weren't able to really enter um, Avalanche train much at all with the way that the persistent week layer went. So we had a pretty, um, I had a pretty like low risk tolerance throughout the entire season. Um, and uh, moving into this season, it, it was almost hard to go back the other way um, to start moving into steeper terrain. Um, so I think that was a little bit of a mind shift was um, kind of also like allowing yourself to like push into steeper terrain and uh, when stability allows after having like a really challenging season. Mm-hmm. Nikki, what do you find to be the most challenging part of avalanche forecasting? Yeah, I think the most challenging, but also kind of like the most rewarding part of avalanche forecasting is you are taking a pretty complex topic. Um, Like snow science is fickle. It's got so many components from um, weather to terrain to the snowpack to metamorphism in general. And just synthesizing that all down, making it um, diluted and simple and a um, digestible product. So I think it's like the hardest part is taking all of these components and making it something that everybody can understand and get something out of. But it's also, um, I think the like most enjoyable kind of like the funnest part is that you, it's like a puzzle every single day. It's always different. You're figuring out uh, maybe the best way to write something or you see somebody else write something and you're like, wow, they that's like awesome. I'm going to absorb that. Um, so I think it's it's taking something so complex and making it digestible and helping people understand it. Yeah. It it seems so critical to be able to synthesize all this complex information, you know, into essentially a bottom line, right. That, that your target Mm -hmm. audience is hopefully somebody that's taken a level one avalanche course, but it might not be, it might be somebody that's just taking their dog for a walk, um, and maybe entering underneath some avalanche terrain. Right. So, um, it seems like, uh, being able to convey that in in an effective and simple way uh, is and can be super challenging. Does the UAC focus on technical writing at all, or or do you get coaching around that? Yeah. Um, so uh, in the past, we've worked with actually like an editor who will like not in the snow science world that will come in and edit um, the forecasts to work on your writing. And I think it goes both ways. Like not only are you simplifying things down to help those. Um, you know, entry level users, but you also want to be writing a product that still gives um, valuable tidbits or kind of like cookies of information to those like competent professional readers that um, they're also getting something out of it. So it's kind of finding that balance of like a digestible product that gets the bottom line across and um, is valuable to all tiers of readers. All right. Well, Nikki, uh, what is your, what does the rest of your summer look like? You said you were heading up to the Pacific Northwest and and uh, how will that summer carry you into next winter? Are you planning on being back in Utah? Yep. Um, I'll be heading up to the Pacific Northwest. Um, 
ideally today and start guiding on Rainier in the next week or two and then guide a Denali trip uh, end of May. And then I'll take some time off and then do quite a few more Rainiers, some time in the North Cascades, and then I'll head back to Utah. I'll be back here at the UAC next season. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for sitting down with us today and sharing your knowledge and experience and and stories of of being an avalanche forecaster. Uh, We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that episode with Nikki. Thanks again, Nikki, for taking the time uh, to chat with us today. And if you're looking for something to do next winter, head on over to the American Avalanche Association's website. You can check out their employment listings. And there's currently an opening for an internship at the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center, that same position that Nikki had talked about earlier in the episode. So that closing date for that internship is July 23rd, and you can find out more at www.americanavalancheassociation.org and click on the employment listings. If you're not already subscribed to the Utah Avalanche Center's podcast, I highly recommend doing that as well. Uh, I've, I've had recently some housework to do and, and I've been behind on catching up on podcasts, but just the other day I binged most of last season's uh, Utah Avalanche Center podcasts hosted by Drew Hardesty, a great resource, uh, and, and Drew asked some just amazing questions and has some great conversations with his guests on that. So please uh, do yourself a favor and check out the Utah Avalanche Center's podcast. A big thanks to you all for such a great season and your continued listenership. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. And if you want to take an extra step there, make sure to go over to Apple Podcasts and write a review and give us a rating. We really appreciate that. Big thanks to our awesome contributors and producers for the season. Wes Gregg, Dom Baker, Kelly McNeil, Matthias Valker, and Sean Zimmerman-Wall. I really appreciate all your contributions this season, and I know our listeners do too. If you have some ideas for some guests for next season, uh, please send us an email. You can reach out at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Drop us a note, and we'll do our best to get those guests on for next season. Already looking forward to it. This podcast is made possible through industry partners. Thanks so much to Vison Avalanche Control, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. If you represent a company that would like to partner and advertise on the podcast next season, please reach out the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Music on today's episode was provided by Ketza with permission from the artist. You can find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. Check out more of his work at Mike T. That's M-I-K-E-T-E-A dot com. Don't forget to follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And we'll be back on October 1st with our first episode of Season 7. Until then, have a great summer. Stay safe and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.